Good morning again. <laughs> we are three weeks away from Easter, and I just realized that kind of in the fullness right now. <laughs> so you're watching real time. I'm a pastor, so Easter is like the best day of the year, and uh, now I'm really even more excited because I realized, oh yeah, it's March 21st. We're like coming up quickly. I hope you know that. I hope you made plans to do that. Um, we'll be kind of talking about what does that look like for us at Center in the, in the, in the next couple of days, but um, just wanted to say welcome to this journey. Because Easter really is a journey. As we're taking these next three weeks through graves to gardens, um, I do not want you to miss a single day. Even if you're gone or you're like, oh, I'm doing spring break on Easter or whatever, join us online. You can do that. Thank you for those who are. Um, it's going to be really, really fun. And so I was just thinking about it as we approached because March 21st was kind of the cutoff date for a pretty significant day in the life of Lindsay and I. Um, no, it's not anything to do with pregnancy because that's still two months away. I don't know if I'll make it, but I don't know if she'll make it either. <laughs> what a grind. Wow. It's incredible. Um, but <laughs> what I was referring to, I'm not even sure what you're laughing at, to be honest. I don't know what I said. Maybe I'll regret it and I'll watch it later. But March 21st was kind of the cutoff date for us to finish our kitchen remodel. And all of you who've done renovations are starting to laugh subconsciously because you're like, there's no way you hit that. And you're right, I didn't hit it. There's a lot of projects left to do. Um, but we're in the process of this. And the only reason that was kind of the cutoff date is because my in-laws were in town. So Lindsay's stepdad and her mom came and her stepdad is a master, I call him the house surgeon because he just knows what to do and troubleshoot and really can basically do everything that we needed for the kitchen. So I was basically his minion for this whole week, just doing what he told me to do and putting things where he wanted me to put them. And so they were there. And, and anytime we're together, we always, so I've known their family about 10 years. I all, we always kind of go back to those stories, right? If you have a spouse or, or you're dating someone or in a romantic relationship, you, ten, you have a tendency to go back and be like, remember when like, remember the first week I met your parents, or remember the first time I went to your lake house, or remember the first time I went on a vacation with your family? Like, those are pretty significant milestones. And I remember the first weekend I spent uh, the weekend with uh, Lindsay's family. Hadn't met them before. Cold turkey said, yeah, let's drive 13 hours from where we're going to school to their house in New Jersey. We show up there, and her mom is an incredibly hospitable person. And so she kind of prepped us along the way. She said, okay, I'm going to go to the grocery store can you make sure to just send me what John likes for breakfast? Which I felt like I'm honored. I love, I love that you're even thinking about food for me. That sounds incredible. And so I had this streak, and this is weird. You're, some of you are going to judge me. Some of you are going to love me right now. Is I had this weird streak kind of towards the end of high school into college where I really liked grapefruit. Like I loved grapefruit juice, pulp included. Like to me, this was great. And this is actually a white grapefruit, but if you think about it, like it's one of those rare fruits that's incredibly polarizing. <laughs> you either think it's amazing or you don't. In that, in that season of life, I thought it was amazing. So I said, Lynn, could you please just get me two gallons at least, if not more, of grapefruit juice for this weekend at your house? And so she did. She's an incredible hospital person. She bought the grapefruit juice. And then I started to do the math. Okay, I'm there for three mornings. And she just bought two huge two-gallon jugs of Florida's natural grapefruit juice. This is not going to go well. So I get there, and basically I sit down after driving 13 hours in the car, and, and uh, I was like, well, I got to start now. I crack open the grapefruit juice. Here we go. It's like midnight, and I'm just glug, 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 like chugging it. Next morning, boom, hit the grapefruit juice. Lunch, grapefruit juice, evening meal, 
grapefruit juice, midnight snack. It was grapefruit juice. I was trying so hard to impress her mom. I was literally chugging this stuff like crazy. And then finally Sunday rolls around. We have to drive back. We have class the next morning. We drive back and we still had at least like a gallon of this grapefruit juice left. So she puts it in the cooler and, and we take it. I have not drank grapefruit juice since that moment. I'm not even kidding you. I just... There was like a season where I loved it, and then I loved it a little bit too much, and I just decided I don't want to love that anymore. <laughs> I'm done with that. And so even just holding this is kind of traumatic for me. Anyone want a white grapefruit? I can just throw it at you, and nothing's going to go wrong. You know what? I'm not going to do that because I, I, nope, I, nope, I'm, nope, nope. The liability just screams at me right now. You can have it later. Um, but I was thinking about that because there's, uh, and really that has to do with preferences or kind of taste, but there's certain seasons of life in which there are decisions I make about what I'm going to love or what I'm not going to love. Like we do this with sports as well, right? Maybe you're in the March Madness frenzy and you're picking which team do I love or not, which really you don't know any of the teams. So I don't know how you do that, but you just decide, well, I love these guys. I want them to win. Or I love this team for this reason. I love this player for this reason. Uh, some of you, the same happens with the car, right? I, I love this car when I first buy it, and then five days later, there's something I find that's wrong. I don't really love this car anymore. Or just restaurants, right? As restaurants have reopened here in Michigan, like I thought about that. I was like, you know, there's some places I loved about a year ago I went back to, and I'm like, I don't know why I love that. Their food was not good, and their service was bad, and it was just weird. So I don't, I don't love those restaurants anymore. What's sobering about human nature is that we do that same game with people. We decide, I love this person, and I don't love this person. And, and here's the reasons I don't love this person, or here are the reasons I do love this person. I love this person because they're a Democrat. I love this person because they are a Republican. I love this person because they like wearing masks, and I love this person because they don't like wearing masks. I love this person because uh, they go to the same places I do, or they think and kind of process decisions the same way I do. I love this person because they want to uh, support the police, and I love this person because they want to reform the police. I love this person. Like, we play that game all of the time, and for some of us, it's quite subconscious. And what's funny, or maybe it's not what's funny, what's sobering, again, about just human nature is that there are millions of dollars spent on media companies every year to help you decide who's worthy of love or not. Have you recognized this just about our own society? It's like, we're going to invest wholeheartedly in making sure that you know who's worthy of love and who is not worthy of love. And we get sucked into the game. It doesn't matter if you follow Jesus or not. One of the phrases I've never said out loud, but I thought a lot about it, and I've subconsciously kind of stated this, is the phrase, I don't have enemies. Like, there's no one I don't love. I love everybody. I follow Jesus. I don't have any enemies. But then when you sit long enough to reflect on just some of the brokenness in my own life and my own heart, is there areas where I'm passive aggressive towards certain groups of people or people? Is there kind of an underlying prejudice when I drive through certain parts of town? Are there areas of my life that have, haven't really been touched by the love and grace of Jesus? And this is why I think the cross is so powerful. Because the cross immediately steps into that human conversation, says, whoa, 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 time out. Let, let's, let's evaluate this from a heavenly point of view. Let me challenge 
you. And that's what the cross does. It challenges the tension that we live with of deciding who's worthy of love or who's not worthy of love. Let me take you to Matthew. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is a Jewish tax collector. I don't know if you love the IRS. I don't have a lot of great things to say, and my mom's an accountant. So she works with them a lot. For me, the IRS is just an interesting lens to perceive this through. But that's what Matthew was. He was basically the Jewish slash Roman IRS agent tracking people down, cheating them out of money. His life gets turned around, and he writes the Gospel of Matthew, really documenting, creating a biographical account of everything Jesus did from birth, the genealogy, until his death and eventual his resurrection and ascension back in heaven. But we're going to be in Matthew 27. This is literally the second to last chapter. And so if you have a Bible or you have something to track with, we're not going to read all of this on the screen. And so if you want to kind of follow along with where we're at in the story, pull that out. But this is one of the heaviest, most depressing in the right sense passages in all of Scripture to me. Because here we see a picture of God who stepped down into humanity, became nothing, and let other people mock and torture and harass and take advantage of him. This is what happens in Matthew 27. In verse 27, here's what Matthew writes about this whole encounter. He, he goes through this fake trial. They end up saying, we want to crucify him instead of this other prisoner. And then in verse 27, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Picture this scene. It's one person with literally 100-plus soldiers around him gathered around in the spectacle. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Not only is that hard to read, it's hard to picture being there. If you're in the moment, if you're a Jewish disciple who's followed Jesus for multiple years and you're thinking, I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the one who's going to restore all things and bring the kingdom of God to earth, crush our Roman enemies. And now this? This seems backwards. This seems anti what the prophets wrote about in Isaiah and Zechariah about who the kingdom of God uh, or who the king of the world was actually going to be. And it's this gripping picture, a sobering picture of, of Jesus being harassed and mocked. This if you're, a Jew, if you're a Roman soldier or you were a Jewish citizen under a Roman-ruled area like these were, these people were, you would have immediately connected just this entire scene with something else in your culture. You know, we kind of have, there's things you read in the scriptures, and then you make a modern connection. Well, that's what would have been happening here. In fact, uh, this whole idea, it's really, it was a concept that's being played out here called the Roman triumph. Roman triumph. But what would happen is when a huge kind of Roman military victory would take place, uh, a governor or a military leader or sometimes even an emperor would lead a massive processional, hundreds of people down major city streets just to let everyone know who won. But part of that processional was they would lead multiple or at least one large animal to kill and to feast on afterwards. 
So they'd have an ox or have a large cow or something like that, and they would tie that, that animal's death instrument around it, forcing it to carry its own sacrifice tool. Do you see the connection here with the cross? Do you see what's happening in this scene? I mean, moments after this whole mockery takes place, Jesus would then carry his own death instrument to be sacrificed for humanity. So they're not doing that to to draw spiritual connections. They're doing that to mock Jesus, to make fun of this supposed king of the Jews. Now, when I read a story like this, and I feel like I've gotten more like this the older I've gotten, is I immediately want to pick out who's the bad guy in this story, right? (laughs) Because I want Jesus to be good. Like, I want him to be not in this position or situation. If you're a disciple of Jesus who literally gave up your business, your life savings to follow this rabbi through the desert, healing people and putting demons and pigs and a bunch of weird stuff, but you know that he's the son of God, and then you see this happen, you'd be wanting to find out who's the enemy here too. Who do we need to track down and take out after this whole encounter? Because this is not how we thought it would go. So immediately my mind would jump to Pilate. I mean, the, the governor, the one who signed off and said, you know what, I'm not really going to, I'm not going to care about this. I'm just going to literally wash my hands. I'm going to take a step away. You can figure out what you want to do. Maybe he's the enemy. Or how about the Roman guards who are here? The people who are literally paid minimum wage to beat up people like Jesus. Innocent people, not all the time, but in this situation, completely innocent. The trial had no evidence, nothing was proven, and yet is still being led to death on a cross. I'd be mad at those guys too. Those are the enemy. How about the Jewish leaders? I mean, we just kind of talked last year, went through the gospel of Mark very, very slowly, and over and over again in the gospels, there's these encounters Jesus has with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, people who are in kind of religious higher positions, and they end up plotting in like the first couple chapters to try to kill Jesus. Those guys, they're, they're the enemy. And then I'd look around at my band of brothers, my other disciples, my friends who we just had Passover meal with, and then we're praying with Jesus in the garden, and now we're in this position. Remember Judas? Judas was there. Judas was the one who did the handoff and betrayed Jesus, let them know where he was hanging out, and eventually led to their death. Maybe Judas is the enemy, right? He's the insider who flipped on Jesus and their band of disciples. But as you trace the story of the cross, as you walk through this entire moment in Jesus's life, those weren't the enemies. The enemy was death itself. It was the hatred that divides us even today. It was the prejudice that seeps into our hearts. It was the violence that seems to run rampant in times of chaos and confusion. It was the actual very thing that divides humanity into who gets worthy of love and who's not worthy of love. It was death itself. And as you watch this scene unfold, uh, the greatest truth for me that comes out of this story and what I want to just center our just next few moments around is this idea that God's love turns enemies into friends. And I don't like hearing that. 
Because I would much rather have a God who tells me, here's your enemy, here's, not, here's who's not your enemy. And I could just live that way. It would be super black and white. But that's not how the cross challenges us. That's not the tension that we're presented with at the cross. It's actually the fact that God's love and sacrifice and the cross, this death instrument that's represented and we wear on our chest or we have a tattooed on our body somewhere, or we have a shirt that has a cross, this Roman death instrument actually is a symbol now that it's God's love that can turn an enemy of God, an enemy that we would describe as they're the problem, into a friend, into a person worthy of dignity and value and, and the grace of God, just like we have. God's love can do that. God's love turns enemies into friends. And, and the moment that leaves my mouth, I recognize how totally counterintuitive that is. Because our world doesn't have a category for that. Our world decides who gets love, who doesn't get love, and the cross says, no, 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 no. That's not how the kingdom of God works. Because God's love has a way of turning enemies into friends. I grew up in church maybe like you did. And I remember just tracing basically how I thought of God all throughout my adolescent years. And that's kind of how I lived. Maybe he was a representation of your dad. And your dad was stern and hard and didn't say I love you, didn't show physical affection. And so when you read a story in the Gospels or you read something about who God is, that's immediately who you think he is. Stern, removed, aloof from your life mean, judgmental, that's maybe who you think God is. I grew up just feeling like God was distant from my daily life in general. It wasn't that he was mean. It wasn't even that my dad was a bad dad. It's just that I grew up with the picture that God was kind of out there, and if I just performed good enough, I just achieved enough. If I just had a perfect record, I didn't sin too bad, then God would love me. And then I would have his grace and approval. And so I just lived out of that place. I would read that into the scriptures. Be like, okay, that's who God is. He, I need to do this here. I need to live out this formula, and then I'll make it to heaven, hopefully when I die. But who knows? Like, that's kind of how I operated. But this story, actually this reality, this historical fact that we're reading about, it flips all of that on its head. And the scripture writers all throughout the scriptures would say this, that God is not a being who has made a decision to love, right? That's, that's how we operate. We tend to make decisions about who we love and, and who is worthy of love or not. God doesn't make a decision about, to, about who he is going to love and, and will he love broken humanity today or tomorrow. Friends, he can't help himself but love. In 1 John, it actually describes in kind of the Greek concept that that. The love of God is actually a character trait. It's like DNA interwoven into who God is. It's, it's the very nature of God. And that's why, to me, one of the most moving verses in this entire story is in Matthew 27, 54. If you scroll down or skip down, listen to what happens as a result of Jesus' forgiveness and sacrifice and suffering and humiliation on the cross. It says, when the centurion, centurion, a Roman official who had climbed the ranks of the, of the local military, who was probably overseeing around 100 soldiers at the time, when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake. So you can scroll back, and that's why you should read the whole chapter, right? There's some kind of nature things that take place here. 
and all that had happened, which could encompass a lot, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely this was the Son of God. Surely this was the Son of God. It's a confession. Now, if you stuck around at the beginning of this year, we preached to the churches in Revelation, Jesus' people, do you remember like the main thing that Roman people had to say about the emperor, about the leader of the time, about the governor or the Roman official? He's the son of God. Diocletian, Domitian, Nero, they are the sons of God. They have both human authority, but also divinity that's from on high. But that's not what the centurion says here. There's a transformation that takes place here because this statement would have cost you your life as a Roman centurion. Surely this dying, bleeding Jewish rabbi, he's the son of God? That's your definition of power and and rulership and authority and that's the kingdom of God that you want? And the centurion and all those with him, I don't know if that was a couple guys close by, or if that was all of, the, all of the hundred of them, this was not their first crucifixion either. It's not like Jesus was the first one, and they were just moved by the blood and the sweat and the tears of Jesus. No, they had seen literally hundreds of crucifixions before this. They were numb to the screams, like the clinging of the nails. They, they had heard all of that stuff. They've seen the mourning mother on the hillside. They've seen the disciples the followers of whoever the political leader was of the day. And they'd seen all of this stuff. But there was something about Jesus. There was something unique about this crucifixion that changed everything. It turned the enemies, the Roman soldiers, the centurion, into an enemy of God, into a friend. From, into a friend. And to me, that's what's really moving. As you trace the story, even of the birth of the church... The book of Acts, some of you have read this, you know, you're familiar, like six or seven different centurions in the book of Acts become transformed by the grace of God. And it's not because they watched the cross, it's because they knew people who had encountered the power of the cross. And it changed them, it, it reoriented whole families. You can read this, right? It's in your Bible. Cornelius and other people, full families said, we need to get baptized. Their lives were turned around. Everything had changed. They had become a friend of God. And formerly, they were enemies, persecuting Christians, harassing them, tracking them down to kill. God's love has a way of turning enemies into friends. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I read the story that I'm about to read to you. And I was actually in a class, believe it or not. I paid attention in a lot of classes, but not all of them. But this one, I was paying attention. And our professor actually read this story. I was like in my senior year. And if you think senior, if you're in high school, you think senioritis is bad in high school, wait till you get to college, right? Wait till you paid for it. (laughs) It's like, I just want to be done with this. This is crazy. So this is literally my last semester of courses. I'm sitting in this class, and we're talking about forgiveness, actually, and talking about the cross and all these things. And when you're in an academic setting, it feels very intellectual. It doesn't feel very personal. I mean, just like it or not. Um, and so we had to do some assignments around this. But my professor started to read this story, and he is a very stoic human being. You know the kind of people who are happy and they look like this? He was that guy, okay? Some of you are those people too. Uh, so just so you know that. I, I look at your faces every single Sunday, and you could be the joy of the Lord, but it'd be like this. 
So just letting you know that. Fun fact, four years later, okay? Um, and he began reading this story, and normally, again, very straight-faced, very, very just composed, put together. And uh, my professor started to weep. I've never seen the guy cry, ever. And normally in a college lecture class, you don't have people that are just openly weeping. He started reading this story and began to, re- began to weep. It's a story of an account that Corey ten Boom tells. Corey ten Boom was a Jewish Christian in the Netherlands who was hiding other Jews from the Gestapo and other Nazi forces as they invaded the Netherlands. She eventually was put into a prison camp and released many, many years later and had such an encounter with God in those prison camps that she began speaking to groups of churches and, and community groups throughout Germany and the Netherlands following the end of the war. And this is what she writes. She's speaking at this event. She says, The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence and in silence collected their coats and in silence left the room, and that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with skull and crossbones on top. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of her skin. My sister Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good is it to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my purse rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember me? One prisoner among thousands of women. But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release I had been face to face with one of my captors, and it seemed like my blood had frozen. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard in there. He didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've met Jesus. I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I stood there as as a disciple of Jesus who every day had my sins forgiven, and I couldn't do it. See, Betsy had died in that place. Could he, this moment, erase her terrible, slow death simply for the asking? Couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives and loves has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. And if you do not forgive their trespasses, Jesus says, you will not be forgiven yours. I knew it, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily lived experience. Since the end of the war, I'd had a home in the Netherlands for victims of Nazi brutality, 
those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness and their hatred for their enemies remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness, it's not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I, li I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you're going to have to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. I remember hearing that and being shaken to the core because immediately my first thought was this story. It was the cross. It was this moment with the centurion. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're not, you're maybe off the hook here, but if you're a disciple of Jesus, we don't decide who to love. We decide to love. We don't decide who's worthy of love or not because that's not our job. Since you were born, it was not your job. We don't decide who's valuable in this world. We don't decide who's, who's worthy of dignity or, or worthy of God's love or not. We just decide to love. So when that text message from a friend or an ex still stings, just decide to love. When we don't know if the marriage is going to even make it to next year, decide to love. When that adult brother is doing all the wrong things and making stupid, detrimental decisions to his own future, decide to love. Because God's love has a way of turning enemies into friends. And that was one of the things that unlocked my own story too. I remember the moment I came to Christ, this verse rung in my head. It's Romans 5. Romans 5.10 literally talks about this. And I just want to read it over you. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, that's the beauty of the gospel, is that before you ever surrendered to God, before you ever made Jesus Lord of your life, you were considered an enemy of God too. And yet God's love has a way of turning enemies like us into friends. And that's what strikes me about the cross. It's not the brutality of the act itself, though that is moving. If you've ever seen an artistic depiction or a movie, you understand that is difficult to watch. But for me, almost a more profound reality is who was watching as that took place. It was all of Jesus' enemies. It was all the people we would label not worthy of sacrifice, not worthy of love, not worthy of this act of God laying down his own life. But God's love turns enemies into friends. So the big question, maybe you're already thinking about it, who do you need to love this Easter? Is it an enemy? Is it 
a spouse? Is it a coworker? Is it your parents? Who do you need to love this Easter? And I can't answer that question for you. <laughs> I can't force you to do anything with it. I can't force you to make a change or to text that person after service or, or call someone and ask for forgiveness. I can't do any of that. But what we can do, what I can do, and what I will do, is just keep pointing us back to the cross. What, what does this mean for me? Who, who do I need to love? Who do I need to forgive? What does the cross make possible for my relationships in this Easter season? I've got names that immediately come to mind when I wrestle with that question. Who do I need to love this Easter? Some people are, are different than me and they're in a category and I don't really think like them or act like them, but there's some people in that space I need to love. Names, specific people I need to love. There's some people connected to my own family who right now it's, just, it's difficult to love. And I need the supernatural love of God to flow through my life. I need the power of what happens with the centurion and the cross to, to really turn that around. But you may be sitting here today and you've never accepted the love of God for yourself. You've never surrendered to that reality. And you know, as your heart is pounding, that that's your next step. That's saying, Jesus, I know I am far from you and I want to be brought near. I know that I'm closed off in relationship with you and I want to open that up. This is really not the finish line for you, but it is the starting line. It's the beginning place. And so I want to pray over us just as a full community, no matter where you're watching, knowing that there may be someone, whether you're online or you're right here, that today's the day you cross that line, you make that step, you decide, okay, this is not just gonna be a story for someone else. This is going to be something that, that I embrace and I surrender to. So would you pray with me? Jesus, I, I thank you that you, in the darkest moment of all of our lives, in the rock bottom, in the moments where we needed a third chance. You offer to us the cross, not just as a symbol, not just as a story, but as a daily lived reality that you can turn our hearts around. You can open our lives up to people who are different, who we would maybe even consider enemies of ours. And you can set us free from that bondage and those chains. And so God, what, maybe today that's a spouse for us. Free us, Lord. Give us your love. There's a good chance that there's someone here that it's a coworker. It's a boss, it's a client, it's an account. We just cannot stand them. There's just passive hate every time we talk to them. And so, Jesus, for that person, for that family, God, would you infuse that with your love that the cross makes possible? And God, there may be someone watching at home or in their car or in this room who knows that their next step is to surrender their lives to you, is to say, I'm not going to spectate anymore. I'm not going to just be interested in Jesus. No, I want to begin to follow this kind of God. 
Not what I grew up with, not what my parents said God was, not what I in my brokenness have contrived God to be. No, the very loving, sacrificial, forgiving, mercy-filled God, I want to follow him. And before I close this prayer, maybe you know that's you. Would you just slip your hand up real quick as, and say, I want to begin that relationship today. I don't know what it looks like. I don't have all the answers, but I know that's my step. Would you just throw your hand up real quick? I want to pray specifically for you this morning. So God, we pray that you would show us your love. You'd show us your grace. And I thank you that it's your love that has a way of turning what looks like a grave into a place of life again, into a garden of your promise and your potential and your future. And so we claim that today. We pray that and we surrender to that reality and that truth in Jesus' name.